Welcome to Behavioral Grooves, the podcast that explores our human condition. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We talk with researchers and other fascinating people to unlock the mysteries of our behavior by using a behavioral science lens. So, Tim, I I don't know if our listeners know this or not, but you, in my opinion at least, are a lifelong learner. You are the epitome of what a lifelong learner looks like. In fact, I think you have a habit of learning. Would you agree? Well, I like to learn and, you know, you too, by the way. Okay, yeah, but you are always (laughs) sending me insights that you find online or in a journal article or you're probing and asking questions, trying to figure things out. I know you're too humble to admit it, but I really do admire how much you are always expanding not only your own mind, but those around you. Well, the same could be said about you, Dr. Nelson. Uh, you know, you went back to get your PhD when you were not just a young pop, you know, living footloose and fancy free. I mean, you were older, you had obligations in your life and you did a PhD, you know, it was a challenge. Yeah. And you too are constantly sending me blog posts and research insights and weird articles and trivial musical stories, <laughs> you know. And, and of course, you do a great job of asking me great questions. Okay. All right. So maybe, just maybe we both might be a little bit on that curious side, you know? Which, which makes us compatible podcast co-hosts. I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good point. Yeah. Uh, which is why but not, not only is it we're good co-hosts, but uh, we're good co-hosts with this particular guest because Sarah Nichols, who is our guest today, has focused her career on extending the reach of learning, particularly as it relates to learning inside of organizations. Yeah, we had Sarah on to talk about her new book, Learning Habits, Drive a Learning Culture to Improve Employee and Business Performance. And that the book reveals how organizations can build systems and processes to make learning habitual for the entire corporate culture. She brings in a lot of great behavioral science to really drive this home and to ensure that the structure that she's built is on a really solid scientific foundation. And with that, we invite you Groovers to relax with a refreshing glass of new insights and listen to our conversation with Sarah Nickel. Sarah Nickel, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here and thank you for inviting me to join. Oh, it's it's our pleasure. We're happy to have you here. We need to find out first and foremost, of course, do you prefer coffee or tea? Oh, definitely coffee and generally two in the morning. Yes, thank you. <laughs> generally two. Some days three. <laughs> no, some days one. This morning was one. Oh, oh, okay. Okay. I have some day three days and some day four days. So that's where I was going with that. All right. Second speed round question. Dinner with your favorite actor or favorite musician? Oh, that is a tough one. Uh, favorite actor or favorite musician? I think I would love to go to dinner with Meryl Streep. That Ooh. would be really wow. fascinating and, yeah. and a treat. Uh, she would be fantastic as a as a dinner person. I mean, if you had to ask, this is not the speed round question, but you know, <laughs> all right, Meryl Streep. Are you going to talk to her about a, a movie or just in life in general or, or, or everything in all, all together? 
I think I would, uh, yes, yeah, life experience, but also uh, I loved her in the movie about the Panama Papers. And particularly at the end when she turns from the person she'd been playing in the movie into herself and the change in her voice and her stature. I mean, like, it's just amazing. But uh, I, there's lots of things to talk to her about. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. And and just I think in the 360 some episodes, I don't think anyone has ever mentioned Meryl Streep. And I think that that's a big miss. I think you you hit on something really important there. Okay. When it comes to corporations, is it best to focus on helping leaders learn or to lead with certainty? Oh, I would go for learning every time. I am a big proponent of leaders modeling the behavior and setting the expectation for learning in organizations. If they're not learning and if they're not showing their authentic self, uh, and sharing that with their organization, then nobody is going to put aside the time for learning and it just won't get priority in the organization. Leading with certainty, while that can be really, really reassuring in these uncertain times, so they shouldn't sound too waffly, but <laughs> I definitely want them to show that they're learning all the time. Yeah. yeah, excellent. All right, I think we might know the answer to this next one too, <laughs> but we'll see. Now, should company executives post on social media about what they're learning? I feel like that's definitely a leading question because uh, in my book, and thank you for that, um, in my book, I cover uh, executive-led dedicated time for learning. And a key component of that is the evidence of learning, particularly when you have continuous learning going on and people are learning from their devices, logging into systems to learn. They're not maybe in a classroom where you see other people learning. Then you don't know, you don't see that social proof of learning in the organization. And that's where social media can really come in because executives can post, they can encourage people to learn, they can share what they're learning. They don't have to do that in a meeting. They can do that online, either through internal social media uh, tools or externally. And I find a lot of organizations even want to uh, promote it externally because they want to show that they're offering learning to their employees, that they're a great place to work. And they can attract people to work for the organization that way. That is a terrific way of, of framing it. And we are talking about learning habits, uh, drive a learning culture to improve employees and business performance. And the book is written to really help leaders improve organizations, right? Fair, fair enough, right? So what do you think about uh, what are the learning habits that contribute most to healthy organizations? You can look at learning habits from three different categories, organizational, team, and individual. And when you have the organizational ones, those are certainly some that are keystone habits, those habits that can cause a ripple effect throughout the organization. And some of those are really aligning learning to what the organization is trying to achieve. So having the sort of tying it into the fiscal planning to plan what that people need to learn for the next year. Of course, that has to be agile and change, but people need to know why the offerings that are out there matter to the results that they're responsible for. So a process of integrating that into the planning for the organization, that's a huge habit that's really important. The executive-led dedicated time for learning, that one can be a blanket habit across the organization, make it the default, maybe have a certain day of the month that's for learning, uh, different uh, times that people can learn and have that on the calendar. Uh, those are some key organizational habits. And then team meetings. When I did interviews for the book, uh, it really was team meetings and the manager that was the biggest influence on mm. people learning in an organization. 
And we see that too in Peter Senge's book, The Fifth Discipline. He talks about the importance of the team for those social norms and social proof as well. And so things like just talking about learning in team meetings, sharing what you've learned, having collaboration channels where you can chat about learning. And uh, you want to also, when you're learning, generate new things. That's You want to innovate and try out new things at work. So sharing that, chatting with others, those are some of the individual habits. So after you learn something, then having conversations about that. Some of these happen normally if you're in a learning environment with other people. But if we're working hybrid and, and maybe a little more asynchronously, then we need to take them on as personal habits, look for cues in our everyday to tie them to so that we continue with those. Uh, I love uh, BJ Fogg's work with uh, in, in his book, Tiny Habits. And he talks about the importance of having a trigger to start a habit. And it's so important with learning to find something already in your routine that you can tie to. Like I have one in my book with uh, log on learning. So when you log on in the morning, just read an article, do a bit of a course, try, start the day with some learning that way. And you can tie it to that existing cue. Yeah, Sarah, I love love that idea of tying it to a cue, but you also talk about scheduling these things. So putting them into your calendar. And one of the things that you talk about at the very beginning of the book that I thought was really interesting and I think important is this idea that you should use learning to change behavior. And and I, I think both Tim, I, I'm speaking for you, Tim, but I you think can. both of us agree <laughs> uh, wholeheartedly on that. And it's one of the things that at least in our work with organizations, we don't always see. We see this idea that sometimes there's learning and it isn't tied into behavior change. So what do we need to do to make sure that learning changes behavior and isn't just an exercise that people go through? What do we need to do? That's a great question. And and you're right. So often we focus on really good delivery of learning. We get it out there. We give people the information. But if we know anything from behavioral science, it's that you can give people information, but it's not going to change their behavior. <laughs> that is so, so true. <laughs> it, is, um, it is an ongoing challenge, but that's where uh, people can, in the teams, talk about how they're applying what they've learned. Because often, uh, especially in corporate learning, you go to something, it could be a, a really, really interesting course. Maybe it's something online, uh, something, a conference you go to, but then people struggle with how do I apply this in my environment? Because the context is really important. And when they get back uh, to their role, they're not quite sure how to integrate that new information or new way of doing things into their work. And that's where you can just try things out uh, do if there's practice uh, areas that you can do, or just uh, take small risks and uh, try new ways of working and and chat with your colleagues, all the kind of uh, individual habits that can be key to generate something new with the learning. Because if you, uh, A, you're going to kind of get that IKEA effect when you uh, start generating something new. So you're going to own it yourself and, uh, and try something new. But if we don't do that, if we don't change or update our mental models, then, then it's just information going in that never gets retrieved. And, uh, and it may not may not stay. <laughs> so uh, right. that's uh, not going to change behavior. Well, you mentioned the team meetings as being so important. Uh, Kurt and I are huge believers in that as well. We've, we see so much happening on the front lines at the team meeting level that so oftentimes gets overlooked. You said that this came up in the interviews. Do you think that there's a problem is is to some or, or to what degree is there a problem with uh, companies not exploiting the value of the team meeting? 
I think that people think of the team meeting sometimes to talk about existing work. I've seen team meetings where they're just kind of going person by person with updates. And if you do that every week, that's not a very interesting team meeting. Even if you have very interesting work, sometimes not a lot changes week to week. But uh, if you can have an agenda that just has a little time for insight sharing or lessons learned, then just structuring an agenda that allows for that time, because so often that gets crowded out by the work that needs to get done. But the work that needs to get done is not going to be done particularly well if you never step back, reflect, or uh, share new ideas out with the team. And so just having that agenda include that can really be powerful and can help give space to the team to share those things and make it the social norm. Because a lot of times people, maybe if they're a little quieter too, they don't want to speak up if they did something new. Mm. So I find when a manager in one-on-ones can uh, discover what people are doing that's maybe a little different and then ask them to share in the team meeting or ask for volunteers. But if you always do volunteers, then you may get the same one or two people always speaking. So I, uncovering it in my manager one-on-ones and then sharing that with the team, having that spot on the agenda. Oh, I love I love the idea of making sure that that is part of that team meeting agenda, because as you said, too often those get to be what's going on today. What are we working on? And just kind of a process component as opposed to using this as an opportunity to learn and to grow. And, and as we talked about change behavior, an interesting piece that you talk about in the book is this idea, again, of, of habits. And we've we've all heard the habit loop kind of element of cue, routine, reward, cue, routine, reward, but you add in context and you just talked about that a little bit more. Can you expand upon context for us and why you think that is important as we think about the habit loop and and how habits are formed? Definitely. And I mean, I think I've heard on your podcast, the uh, context matters. So <laughs> It is one of the things that we we do kind of key in on. So yes, that's maybe why we, we picked up on this on, in the book. So there you go. But definitely, I mean, it so matters. And I think that's often something that people think, well, even on habits, they may just think about the routine, they forget about the cue, and then the routine doesn't happen, or they forget that you know, maybe they give people a routine and uh, or suggest one and don't think about what the reward would be. So I love those three, but it always matters where you're doing it because your habits change mm-hmm. depending on what team you're working on, what, what organization you're with. I see that across the clients I work with. There's very different ways of doing things in different organizations. And then even our routines change. You know, if you're at home versus uh, on, away on vacation, you're going to have different routines. Things it really matters your context and you can set that context up. Uh, and Wendy Wood talks about that in her book, uh, Good Habits, Bad Habits, that more successful people set up their context, their environment to support the habits that they want to continue with. They don't rely on willpower because so much of our day is done out of habit. And we just don't have enough energy to decide everything every day. Even <laughs> if you think you have amazing willpower, <laughs> you need to set it up so it's going to support what you want to do. No, nor do I want to. I don't want to have to make all those decisions every day, actually. I think it would just be overwhelming at a really fundamental level. What do you mean by having a learning culture? Great question. And with a learning culture, I do find I I hear a lot when I'm speaking with learning and development professionals globally in the organizations that I work with and over the 20 years I've been in the field, 
we talk about wanting a learning culture. We want people to learn, but uh, sometimes the definition's a little uh, not too precise on what we mean by a learning culture. And I think having a common frame of reference can really help us uh, with working towards a learning culture. Uh, so, and so with that common frame of reference, you can use learning habits across the organizational team and individual level to actually see where you're at as a learning culture. And so you can look at how often learning habits are happening. So the frequency, you can look at the ubiquity, how much of the organization is using learning habits. So is it only some isolated teams doing certain things or are all teams doing this? Do we have something going across the entire organization? And then how many learning habits are happening? So the depth of learning habits. So that's really the frequency, ubiquity, and depth can give you a measurement. And then like Annie Duke suggests, who I know she's been on your podcast and I just love her work. Mm -hmm. uh, she talks about when making decisions, the importance of putting percentages on things instead of using words that don't have definitions. Uh, so, or well, they do have definitions, but they don't have a, a precise uh, understanding across everybody. Yeah. Uh, so with the learning culture, then I put together the learn model that has five uh, levels, uh, all uh, spelling out learn, uh, for the level of learning culture across an organization. So you're sort of in the lifting phase, the beginning phase, if you're at zero to 20 across those of an average. And you can use it as sort of a ballpark estimate to just come to that common frame of reference for where your organization is. And then where do you want to get to? Uh, I, of course, we are, as you know, huge fans of Annie. And we love the idea of thinking in bets and assigning percentages. And the learn model does that great. You're very kind of precision about breaking out what the the zero to 20, 20 to 40, 40, 60, et cetera, uh, are like. But what stages do you feel like are the most problematic for, for companies? What, what comes up the most as being the most troublesome when it comes to the, this model? Yeah, so I think the most problematic uh, stages, well, I wouldn't say problematic. I, I would say that perhaps a lot of organizations are in the first and second stage. To okay. get right up to the top of the, the model would be a challenge. And then if you have a change in leadership and you have shifts, I mean, things change so often that those habits in organizations change. So it's a continual process. And it's kind of uh, like looking you know, you want to uh, work towards getting better all the time. It's not like there's an end state with it. So I think uh, while people may think, oh, it's if I'm not at the fifth level, then it's it's uh, not achieving. But you can definitely you just keep working towards it. And it's a, and I mentioned learning is like exercise. You if you want to stay in shape, you've got to continue exercising. You don't get to work out, get in shape, and then stay there. <laughs> so uh, learning. That's is the my same problem. Way. That's the problem. I forgot. Oh, good. Yeah, there we go. We learned something today. Uh, you you started to talk about the the uh, learn model, and you talked about lifting as that first phase, um, but we didn't get to the other uh, components. And I think as you're talking here, so if you can just quickly go over those and talk about. Uh, emerging, aligning, uh, I'll let you talk about them. 
There you go. Sure, definitely. So uh, lifting is the beginning phase where you have some habits, the zero to 20% across frequency, ubiquity, and depth, and they go up by 20% each area. And again, you're not going to know precisely how it's going across the organization. You could certainly ask learning leaders or the HR business partners from each group to have an estimate. It's not it doesn't need to be scientific, uh, but gives you an idea. So lifting is the first stage. Emerging is where you're moving more into habits happening. They're more integrated into the planning process of the organization. Aligning, then it really is where you have that planning up front in the year to align learning to uh, the objectives for the organization. And more leaders are uh, encouraging habits throughout their groups. Robust is where you're really, you're in a great state. You have habits happening regularly throughout. Uh, executives support uh, learning in the organization and show that support regularly. And then normalized is where it's, it's the way business is done and uh, it's integrated. You have uh, time set aside for learning. Uh, some organizations like, uh, you know, Google sets aside a percentage of time for innovation and learning and things like Gmail and other uh, innovations have come out of that. Uh, so you have, um, you have those five stages and various levels of uh, depth, frequency, and uh, ubiquity of the habits across. So uh, the curve is heavily weighted towards lifting and emerging is what it sounds like, that there's a lot more companies in that area, right? Yes. Yes, learning is always something that needs to be uh, continued on and having learning habits and really a lot of organizations, they're structured more for event-based learning. Mm. So they are, the people in learning and development are really focused on offering programs and I love learning programs. And uh, so they definitely are more around targeting uh, learning to different programs and supporting that event-based learning. And where learning may be offered for continuous learning and resources that are available to people, a lot of organizations have learning management systems or learning experience platforms. And they have not just the compliance learning that, of course, uh, organizations need to offer, but other resources aligned to roles and paths and things. But often the work of fostering the habits to support that continuous learning and using those resources, it's not resourced for because people are in the mindset of learning is something we go to a classroom and do. And they may not even realize that they're thinking that way. But it is it is a shift that I've seen throughout my career is from event-based used to be more like 70% of the learning in organizations and 30% was maybe done sort of on demand or continuous learning. Whereas now, and especially with COVID, it's Flipped. It might even be 80 to 90% uh, virtual and on demand, and only 10% in that uh, event based learning. But the resources are still used to working in the event based learning. That's why learning habits really most are at lifting or uh, merging into emerging because they're not, they're not thinking of their resources right. uh, in that way. You talk about this idea of that we're shifting from that event based to more continuous ongoing piece. What's the role of, of AI, generative AI within that? And how is that impacting learning in um, organizations and cultures? Great question. Well, first off, I would say generative AI and chat GPT is scaring a lot of people in organizations. Yeah, um, so, yeah. and I'm sure you've heard that, but I've been in sessions with learners recently, and it's a question that comes up and people are 
They're thinking about what jobs will use those technologies. Organizations are investigating those technologies to see how it can fit, whether it's secure, how they can use it in their environment. They're considering roles like prompt engineers. So it's certainly having an impact, especially in the technology groups, around how their jobs will change. But on the learning side, it's been, I mean, AI has been used for a number of years. There's a lot of platforms that use AI. They use it to curate content. They use it to um, crawl the web and then and then suggest learning paths for roles. Uh, they use it to personalize the learning experience. So uh, while that's not generative AI, now, um, it, so but is AI. With generative AI, then I think learning professionals, uh, like a lot of developers and people, are thinking about, well, how does this work for creating learning content? And how's this going to affect my job? Uh, but I mean, we've seen a huge adoption of ChatGPT, but I think a lot of people are still just trying to figure out how to use it. Their organizations, especially large organizations, aren't letting them use those tools on their corporate laptops yet. So they're doing it at home and trying to figure out what, what this might mean. But it is uh, certainly causing a lot of waves and, uh, and uh, consideration around how it can fit into future roles. Which brings me, I think, to an important piece of this. And you talk about this, that organizations are limiting people's even ability to go out and to use these tools in their organization. And yet, it is where I think, and maybe you maybe you have a different idea, but the, where the future is heading. And so, uh, in your opinion, do you think that organizations um, that are limiting that are are doing a disservice? That, or is this a piece where they're still trying to figure things out, and they want to figure things out uh, before they allow their employees to start playing with this? And to that degree. You talk about the different organizational manager and then individual. Is this more of a tool from an individual perspective? Is it a tool for a manager? Is it a tool for an organization? Does it across all four or all three of those? And so I asked multiple questions in there, so I'll let you just talk. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so it will, I, I think it will be a tool for an organization. Uh, I think uh, Microsoft's uh, co-pilot will make it, could be one of the tools that will make it a, a tool for the organization. Because when you roll that out, I mean, if an organization's using MS Office and then they get Copilot, that is everybody uh, using generative AI. But I think while organizations are hesitant or blocking uh, using generative AI on corporate devices, they are at the same time uh, informing or not like, educating employees about what generative AI is and chat GPT and having discussions about it. And I think that's a good approach. I mean, you uh, we don't, nobody wants a security breach and organizations from every industry want to keep their systems secure. So you certainly want to do your due diligence before you bring in something like generative AI uh, into the organization, but then letting your employees know, have courses about it, have discussions about it. I think that's the right route to go. I mean, ChatGPT only came out in what, November or so, and it has exploded. But that's generally not the pace that organizations will bring new technologies in. So <laughs> I think it's reasonable, but I think people learning about it is a really good idea. The other major theme in the book is built around the mnemonic of automatic, these nine letters that spell out the word automatic. And um, I don't know if we want to go through all of them, but maybe you could 
pick out one or two where you feel like there's the greatest opportunity for improvement or impact on an organization. And can I also just editorialize and just say, I kind of love that you use like this little bit of a rhyme and reason effect at the end of each one to have a little clever rhyming phrase to, to reinforce it. So so I think readers will enjoy that uh, if they if they get into the book. But where where do you think uh, would be the best biggest opportunities for improvement among these nine uh, mnemonics? Uh, great. Uh, so automatic uh, that mnemonic I really put together to summarize uh, the key insights from behavioral science and then apply it to learning uh, and learning in organizations because. I think uh, a lot of times, I mean, I see a lot of use of behavioral science in marketing and in app development in lots of areas, but not as much in uh, fostering learning in organizations. So I loved what um, Paul Dolan and Michael Halsworth have put together with Mindspace out of the UK. And that paper was uh, just uh, excellent at summarizing the research. And then they used that, of course, for the nudge unit and uh, applying to public policy. And I loved the idea of a checklist where you could just have that easy to remember and uh, use that when looking at how to make behavior change uh, with uh, public policy. So I wanted to do that with learning. And so took the key insights and the things that I've found have fostered uh, learning in organizations over the years with working with companies and put it into a word that I thought tied nicely with uh, <laughs> learning habits, which is make them automatic. So with that, and uh, and thank you for noticing the rhyming phrase. I mean, we know from uh, Influence by Robert Chidani that uh, when we hear a rhyme, we think it's not only easier to remember, but we tend to think it's more true as well. Yeah. So, uh, and I, I like a rhyme to remember things. But with um, automatic, the first one is uh, allow for feeling good with, uh, if to get it done, make it fun. And that is really something sometimes at work that we forget when you're uh, designing, say, messaging around learning is think about what's fun about it and why people would want to do it because you want those to tie it into individual rewards and make it worth people's time. So uh, just having uh, things that will be appealing from that perspective can make learning stickier in organizations. And then we, we talked a little about executives earlier and the U in, uh, in automatic is under the influence. And that's really that uh, we tend to follow experts. We tend to follow leaders that we like, and we are more likely to follow through on something if someone that in a position of expertise or authority, and in addition that we like, uh, that uh, we will follow what they say. And there's, uh, there's uh, different research that supports that. Uh, that I reference in the book, but you can use that for the messaging, for learning, for that modeling the behavior and setting the expectation. So many areas, uh, it's uh, key to use that. So, and th the third one that I'll mention is uh, tip the scale. Uh, and that is, if we don't see it, we'll skip it. And that I really find with online learning in particular and continuous learning, especially when we're working hybrid, people are uh, you know working from home or different areas, you don't see people learning. You don't mm -hmm. know that they're spending time learning. So uh, sharing that social proof of learning uh, and messaging that either through quotes or you can even say, here's some courses that other people did and or uh, people recommending courses, sharing what courses they've done on social media. That social proof is just really encouraging to tip the scale and, and get people thinking about doing that learning themselves because if they see someone similar to them, doing something, then they think they, they can set the time aside for that as well. Yeah, there you go. It goes back to the 
speed round question that we talked about <laughs> at the very beginning, right? One of the pieces that you just talked about and brought up is this applying behavioral science into the learning side of this. And you do a, a great job. Again, you talked about BJ Fogg and Cialdini, you know, a number of those. You bring in social proof. What do you see from a learning community organization? Why, in, in your opinion, haven't they kind of taken behavioral science to the way that maybe marketing or some of the others have? And is there something inherent uh, around behavioral science that uh, doesn't necessarily lend itself? Or is it just hasn't been maybe as widely recognized or known from your perspective? Yeah, great question. And I think it's behavioral science as a field is a little younger than, say, adult education. And uh, and even adult education kind of grew out of the pedagogy and uh, teacher's college and that sort of thing. And with the resourcing in organizations, a lot of people go into it either Uh, They go into it because they were very good at their jobs and now they're going to train others. So they don't have a background in either learning or behavioral science. They have the business expertise Uh, or they're in learning because they know about adult education. They know about learning and development. And maybe when they were in school or uh, the, the materials that they're reading don't always reference behavioral science as much. But I think like so many people have read some of the popular books out there with like Mm. Thinking Fast and Slow and Atomic Habits. But again, too, I think people are busy in their roles. They may read a book like that. They think about it for themselves as an individual. Mm. But if they're a learning and development professional, they maybe don't tie it into how they can use that for behavior change in their organizations. Or if they... Well, I basically thought I would write the book to make it a little easier to take all that research (laughs) (laughs) so that you can think about how to use this. Because in speaking with L&D professionals globally, uh, lots of people know about behavioral science, but then uh, remembering to use that when you're doing your rollout of learning or messaging things, it's a continual process. And so just uh, having that automatic checklist can, can help with that. A lot of authors that we talk to often mentioned that they learn things through the process of writing the book. Did that happen to you? Definitely. I, uh, <laughs> okay, I really good. enjoyed writing the book and, uh, mm-hmm. and partnering with the, uh, the publisher. They were, they were really good to work with, Kogan Page. But uh, in writing the book, I found that uh, getting a format for the book was really important. It helped me in the structure to have both the learn model and automatic, because I could apply that as I went through each chapter. Having the, it helped me to crystallize my thinking around habits and which ones are uh, key for organizations. And and it, it uh, helped me as well. I, I do a lot of talks uh, with corporations on learning habits. And so getting those ideas, trying them out in those talks, then I would write it in the book. And it was just a nice process to put the two together uh, to do that. That's cool. I'm glad to hear that. I want to talk about music. I want to find out about what might happen, Sarah, what might happen to you if you found yourself on a desert island and you had to make a choice of two musical artists that you would bring with you. So am I bringing the actual person or just their music? <laughs> That's a good question. I, 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 I think if I'm on a desert island, I'd be so freaked out I'm on a desert island that, well, <laughs> that I wouldn't bring a musician. <laughs> let's let's actually, uh, let's stipulate that you're just going to bring their catalog of work. How about, how about that? 
that is a uh, great. Uh, okay. Okay. So, so not, think, not the real person. I, not the real person. Yeah. Also, they, they don't want to be stuck on a desert island. But actually, I just went to the Shania Twain concert uh, here in Toronto and really enjoyed that and so much fun. And she has a new album out. So I think if I had to pick one artist, I would pick uh, Shania Twain. A beloved by many Canadians, of course. Uh, okay. Uh, who would be your second? Yeah, you get to bring two. Yeah. yeah. Get two. Yes. So I think ah, that is tough. I mean, my playlist has a big variety of country, pop, and even classical. So I would have trouble picking another artist, but if I, and I can't pick my playlist. So I would pick perhaps uh, James Taylor. I really like him. Oh. Uh, it's a nice catalog. little mix between Shania and, and mm-hmm. James. I like that. That's yeah. a good, yeah. Yeah. Very, yeah, very nice. good. Thank you. Sarah, thank you so much for your time today, for sharing your insights, uh, for writing the book and prodding us to think about building more learning into the fabric of our organizations. But thanks most for being a guest on Behavioral Grooves today. Thank you so much for having me. This was, this was really enjoyable. Thank you. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I share ideas on what we learned from our discussion with Sarah, have a free-flowing conversation, and groove on whatever else comes into our learning inquisitive brains. You knew that one was coming. I saw the learning coming, but I didn't see the inquisitive. I I like that paired with the learning side. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And why why, why is that? Because it's who we are. Ah. This inquisitive i'm going to tie with uh, as a synonym for curiosity and i would consider us both curious people which i think is a great intrinsic driver of guess what learning yeah so curiosity killed the cat you know (laughs) i don't even know where to go with that (laughs) i was just saying curious is the inquisitive we're learning but you know it might too much curiosity our death who knows it just might be the death of us because Wow. Okay, that's a philosophical conversation okay, we're not right. going to have right now. <laughs> sorry to take us way off of things. So what did you get from the conversation with Sarah? Well, her her, her big payoff for me is, is make organizations into learning organizations, like really centralize this idea of in the corporate culture and really focus on the idea of learning as a centerpiece of the organization. So in your experience, and we've both worked with many different organizations, you've been a part of them, you're a part of one now. Why don't more companies really focus on this? What's holding them back? It's hard. What? What's hard about learning? Come on, we do it every day. Because it's like the difference between being someone who took piano lessons when they were, you know, for five years when they were in high school but then they stop taking lessons and basically they play the same 10 songs for the rest of their life. <laughs> I love that analogy. <laughs> and, but, so, and that's not learning. Like, can you play the piano? Yes. Like, can you, can you be good at marketing? You, well, you can be, you can be a marketer by not studying anymore, but if you're going to be, if you're going to be really invested in the field of marketing, if you're going to advance your career, if you're going to advance the corporation, if you're going to advance the goals of, of, of leadership, you got to be learning. You got you have to be learning new things, and that means picking up and and actually taking on new knowledge, uh, especially in your field. So, so does this need to be a top down or a bottom up movement or some combination? Leaders, I thought 
Sarah did a great job of emphasizing this idea that leaders should lead the learning process, right? That they're going to lead by demonstrating that they are in it for learning as well. That as leaders, they don't want to be static. They're not just going to rely on what they learned 15 or 20 years ago, and that's going to be their their default for how they're going to get things done. Like keep learning new things. But, but it's so interesting because when you said that, it just reminded me of too many leaders that I've run into who that's their default. Well, this worked for me I, 20 years ago when I was doing this, this is the way that we did it <sighs> and we should all do it that way. That's how it works, right? Why is it that we, that's the, it, it seems to be almost a, a default setting on a lot of people that this is, <laughs> yeah. This is what I learned 20 years ago. Therefore, this is how it is. This is what worked for me. Therefore, it should work for you. What is that? <laughs> yeah. 20 years after I learned it, <laughs> that now 20 years later, you should learn the same thing that I learned 20 years ago. How about no? How about no? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> How about actually let's bring something fresh to the table and see what has happened in the world that could update that knowledge base? So how do leaders do that? How, how do they how do they take on and lead this learning process? Well, she, I, you know, I think Sarah does a great job, again, of really focusing on this idea that leaders are going to demonstrate this by example. They're going to partake in and participate in the learning within the company. You and I have developed uh, learning modules for a bunch of companies, mm -hmm. a, a bunch of, we've done lots of projects where we've created learning tools. And it is a pet peeve of mine when we present these to corporate leaders and, and some of them have had, in my opinion, the gall to say, well, I don't have to, you know, I'm not going to take that. I'm going to have people on my team. Do, yeah. this do I need to take this? Uh, yes. You need to go through <laughs> yeah. this. Come yeah. on. Right. Right. It's it's just it's just really irritating. It's like, yeah, I mean, we we developed it with your input and you should take it, if nothing else, as a demonstration that you care about the learning as much as you care about everybody else learning it. Yeah. The, the other thing I think that Sarah brought up in our conversation that I thought was really insightful is this idea that habits and routines are really what push this learning culture into inside the organization. And I can think about that in a number, not just inside of an organization, it kind of is in your, in your own living life, however you want to talk about it, that the habits and routines that you set up, what you do after certain cues will drive that learning and to reinforce those insights. And so I thought that was really interesting. Did you have Wendy Wood playing through your head while we were having that part of the discussion? Can't rely on willpower, right? I mean, you need to set up the environment to support the habits that you want, and then you need to understand, okay, in this situation. And Sarah does in, in her book, it's kind of laid out that way. It's like very, so. very specific situations in this team meeting, in this uh quarterly review in this X, 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 X across the board. And there's a number of those that she goes into. And here's how you can set up the habit to learn from this. Like, what are the questions in, when you enter into this situation? Here's the cue. Now, what's the learning behavior that's going to come from that? 
And then what's the reward? So kind of get that habit loop that goes in through all this. I thought that was great. You know, that just teed up um, an image for me uh, from the book. I would want to say that this book is really well written for corporate managers, not so much entrepreneurs with like one or two employees. This is really about larger organizations. Wouldn't you agree, Kurt? I I think so. But expand on that. Why do you say that? What's the difference between an entrepreneur kind of driving business? I mean, don't they want to have a learning organization as well versus a corporate manager? I think so. I'm not going to discount their intentions by any means, but I tend to see entrepreneurs looking to focus on doing the right thing. Like they have to solve a customer problems and organizational problems sort of on the fly as they're building it. You know, sort of they're, they're building the railroad as the train's coming down the track. You know, the entrepreneur is, is trying to figure out what's the right thing to do right now. How do I do the right thing? But corporate managers, they need to do things right. Mm. The, the contrast is that they need to think about the processes and procedures and policies that are going to enable their organization and, and, and of course, their, all the people that work there to thrive. And, and so sort of once you've got the basis of the business, the corporate manager takes the we're doing the right thing and transmutes that into we have to do things right. And so I felt like the book is really more for, and I'm interested in your thoughts about this, Kurt, but I, my thought is that that Sarah's book really would appeal to corporate managers rather than just pure entrepreneurs. I, I would agree, guys. I, well, to to a degree, I think I think there's aspects that an entrepreneur can take, but the way that her book is written, I, I think it is a much um, better toolkit for managers. In other words, you know, uh, she talks about company wide meetings. She talks about one-on manager one-on-ones team meetings quarterly reviews you know all of these different aspects that you might not have in an entrepreneurial setting and so therefore i think it it plays really well with corporate managers and so therefore that i think is really good I, i the last piece i think is just this concept and this could be for uh entrepreneurs or corporate managers right is make learning the default, that this idea of we should constantly be striving to be learning, improving, and might I say, changing, right? To address what the new context environment is, is showing us and improving upon who we were. We just had our conversation with Hal Hirschfield about our future selves. Well, learning is a way to take our future self, uh, take our present self and to build that more ideal future self. Um, even a more resilient future self. Yes. Right. More flexible, more uh, a, a healthy dose of knowledge goes a long way solving lots of cures as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. All right. So I think that covers most of the salient points for us. Is that, would you agree? I'd say so. Are, um, are we learning I, on how to do this podcast any better? I don't know. And some, in some ways, yes. In some ways, no. But I, I, <laughs> we, <regress>. I do, <laughs> we could be regressing on some level. I do want to take a moment to say that if you, as a listener, you like what you're here on Behavior Grooves, share it with a friend or colleague. Take, take a little risk, right? And show them that you're a lifelong learner and that you value the habit of bringing new ideas into your life. I, I see what you're doing here. 
<laughs> okay, but ser- seriously, uh, we hope that you share our work with someone who might enjoy getting some insights into the applications of behavioral sciences. If you're a bit shy or would prefer to keep your personal recommendations yourself, just maybe consider leaving us a review or give the podcast a quick five-star rating. Um, it takes less time than pouring a cup of coffee and it'll bring a long way uh, to helping us reach more listeners and to provide the gift of learning for those that are out there in the world. Beautifully said. Beautifully said, Kurt. I, again, that, that lovely epistle. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> We'd very much appreciate uh, any support that you could give us. Thanks. So with that, Groovers, we hope that you take your lifelong learning habits and sharing of behavioral grooves with as many (laughs) friends and followers and colleagues as you have this week so that they can help you find your groove.